Hello, I'm Hugh Ronzani and welcome to Tales of Baroque. Each episode, you'll join me and my esteemed guests on another fabulous dive into the Baroque world. Its characters, composers, politics, popes, kings and queens. The Australian Brandenburg Orchestra acknowledges the many traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet and perform. We pay our respects to elders past, present and to our shared future. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology from the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, to talk about the soprano. Have you ever heard of a male soprano before? As we look at this rare masculine voice type, we'll also encounter Cleopatra, the Orpheus myth, rivaling opera companies in London, and some of the most powerful music making in the Western tradition. So, wherever you are, sit back, relax, and join Alan and I for this operatic and sublime Tales of Baroque. Hello, Alan. It's lovely to be speaking with you again today, and what a program we have to talk about. Yeah, fantastic to be back, Hugh, and to talk about really my favourite subject, early 18th century Italian vocal music. Oh, in, a wonderful program. Indeed. And in The Soprano, we are going to be covering some familiar ground, as we have already explored on this podcast previously, um, when two dynamic Australian singers were performing with the Brandenburg. I'm um, thinking, of course, of Higher Angels that featured countertenor Russell Harcourt and soprano Sarah McCliver. Uh, what a program that was, too. Yeah, that was fantastic. But uh, I'm really looking forward to this because we have a rather different kind of voice in this program. Now, have you had the pleasure of hearing Samuel before, Samuel Mourinho? I haven't heard him live, though the recordings are really quite stunning. So I'm looking forward to having the opportunity. And uh, as a singer yourself, Alan, of course, perhaps you would oblige and explain to us about the soprano voice. Why is, I mean, with a, a name like Samuel Mourinho, why is Samuel a soprano? What is what is this all about? And, and what do people usually refer to when they use the word soprano? So soprano, of course, in common usage, um, generally means a, a woman's voice, the highest kind of female voice. But actually, it describes the range, which is the very high voice, and that can actually be sung by either a man or a woman, or for that matter, a child. Uh, where the term comes from is simply from uh, the Italian word sopra, above or uh, up, so that it's it's simply the highest voice range. Um, and so uh, it goes all the way back to uh, the terminology goes back to the Renaissance when it starts to come into use. Uh, and uh, so whatever voice type it is, it's somebody singing very high. Mm-hmm. And I've also heard the word treble used, boy treble, before. Um, how is that different to um, to a soprano then? A lot of these terms tend to overlap, and some of them were just more in vogue at a particular time or in a particular place. Uh, the term treble is mostly used in, in, uh, in England, whereas soprano is, of course, an Italian word. Um, treble, though, in our usage today, mostly refers to a boy soprano's voice. 
uh, and whereas soprano typically refers to a woman or, in this case, to a man who sings extremely high. Now, uh, I'd love to go into the, the details as to how that may be um, because it is unusual to have a male soprano, uh, so far as I've understood anyway. I have not encountered um, so so many of them um, in, in my time singing and performing in um, in music concerts. But, um, but before uh, that, I would just like to, and I usually don't do it so early in our program, but just to give listeners a sense of Samuel's voice because it is, as you say, so stunning and, and, um, and quite unique. So before we get into a, a full-blown discussion, please just have a, a listen. Lend your ears to uh, Samuel's, what was his debut album, Care Pupille, and a particular aria from that album called Care Selve from the opera Atalanta. Now, um, to set the scene, this is the first thing heard in that particular opera. Of course, there, there may have been some sort of overture in, in a sense beforehand, but um, but this is Act One, Scene One, Samuel Mourinho singing here with Martin Hofstetter and the Handel Festspiel Orchestra, uh, recorded by Orfeo in 2020. What an amazing talent that man has. It is remarkable to hear a man singing that high, isn't it? And it really is a, a soprano range going right up into the, uh, not exactly the stratosphere in this particular area, but uh, absolutely up in the, the high notes that we expect usually a female soprano to be singing. So perhaps you could tell us about this particular aria and, and this opera then and, and the voice type that we've mentioned, the soprano. So uh, are, are you familiar with the opera Atalanta and, and who the character was in this in this case, Alan? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, we have in this particular opera, well, one of those stories about the king who dresses up as a shepherd in order to, to court the princess and so forth. And so being... Um, pastoral in that style. You can hear that in the music, that it has that sound of uh, kind of nips and shepherds and all of that. Uh, it's very gentle, very lyrical. Um, you could uh, easily imagine having a flute or an oboe accompanying, as would be typical for that kind of music. Uh, so it creates that, uh, that kind of atmosphere very effectively. Uh, this opening aria then sets the mood of the opera with this kind of pastoral feel about St. Shepherds and so forth. And uh, it also gives us the, the character of the man in a way in the opening scene. 
the opera was not one of Handel's most successful by any means. It came from the period when his uh, well-established opera company was in competition with a rival company that had been set up uh, as much for political as for, arti for artistic reasons by the Prince of Wales in opposition to Handel's company, which was backed by the king. That may seem odd, but that was the politics of the time when this rivalry within the modern within the royal family was played out through the opera theatres as much as it was in the political, the halls of, of uh, the, the court and politics and so on. Um, so, but uh, musically, there are some wonderful pieces in the opera. Uh, it's not um, entirely consistent throughout in terms of its quality, but an aria like this is just absolutely beautiful stuff. Now, uh, the voice, the the voice type here, obviously going back to the the idea of the the male soprano, um, maybe we could have some clarity around the differences then between a countertenor and a male soprano, because I can imagine in this slightly lower range, uh, it's not quite up in the stratosphere as you were saying, although it is certainly very high. Um, other countertenors having a go at, at at this particular aria and creating a rendition of their own. Um, what are the differences there between countertenor and male soprano? And, and how, uh, how are those two things uh, similar but also different? I guess, well, I guess the first thing we need to say is that the uh, singer for whom the role was written was neither a countertenor nor, in our modern terms, a male soprano. It was uh, a castrato singer. And so castrati were um, men who, or boys, rather, who had had a small uh, but important operation on their private parts in, uh, before their voice changed. Uh, so that they retained their uh, boy soprano vocal range um, the, uh, that uh, stopped the uh, normal development of uh, adult um, features and so they didn't grow a beard and, and so on. And also their larynx didn't grow to male size and therefore they retained their soprano voice. Uh, so most of the great stars of opera during this period were in fact castrati and most of the leading male roles were written for castrati. So uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on one's point of view, we no longer have singers of that kind available to in the opera houses today. And so there is always a challenge of who do you get to sing these roles that were written for the great castrati in this period? One of the answers, of course, is to have a woman sing it. And many female sopranos have recorded these wonderful arias. But increasingly in recent years, we have had male singers taking them on. And the way they do it is by singing in the falsetto range. So uh, if uh, people who are familiar with um, you know, popular music like the Bee Gees, um, stand alive, stand alive, stand alive, that's the falsetto voice. It's the same vocal mechanism that countertenors use to sing in a high range. And thank so you, term... Alan. Sorry. Thank you. Just to interrupt. Thank you for putting yourself under the sword, uh, literally to the uh, to the, the, the listener's uh, pleasure there, because it, it, it is something that if demonstrated is immediately obvious as to what is going on. I think a lot of people would be familiar with that sort of sound because it is very utilized in um, in popular music, as you were saying. Yeah, and you get it quite a bit in Motown and, and other kinds of popular styles. Um, in uh, classical singing, of course, a trained voice uh, using that kind of technique um, can sound similar to other kinds of trained voices. Um, when we use the term countertenor, it has historically been used mostly for falsetto singers who sing in the alto range. 
uh, traditionally in English cathedral choirs, for example, the alto parts are sung by countertenors rather than by boys. The, they have boy sopranos, male countertenors who sing the alto part and tenors and basses. Um, so a male soprano is using that same kind of technique, but it's simply somebody who has a particularly high voice, and they're quite rare. Um, most men can learn to sing in their, their falsetto voice and uh, achieve a kind of alto, medium kind of range, but there are very few men who just have that extremely high range available to them. Uh, but there are several around. Uh, Australia's own uh, David Hansen, uh, who we have heard sing in Sydney a number of times recently, who's a graduate of the Sydney Conservatorium. Uh, he's another one who can also sing a blazing top C, but there are not very many of them around, and it's wonderful to have uh, a, uh, an exponent of this style of singing to hear live in concert. And if uh, listeners are very curious, of course, you could go onto even just Wikipedia and and search Ataranta as an example. And um, and there in the uh, the list of roles, Meliagro, who's the name of the character performing this particular aria, um, was originally sung by what is listed as a soprano castrato. So Gia- Giacchino Conti uh, was the was the original man for whom this um, this particular aria was um, written. In fact, the role was was written for him. And there they even specify among castrati the idea of a soprano castrato. And I'd heard this before, soprano castrato versus alto castrato, that even among the castrati, there was a difference in terms of the the range of, of, of their voices. Yeah, that's right. And as there is in, you know, in any kind of um, a voice, you can have, some people have high voices, some people have lower voices. And uh, so Conti, for whom the role was written, was only 20 at the time. Uh, very often, castrato singers' ranges came down a little bit as they aged. And so a very young castrato like this is likely to have had his highest range available at this time. But some of the really great singers of the, the time could sing a very wide range. So Farinelli, for example, the most famous uh, castrato singer of all, and in fact, the most famous singer of the 18th century, uh, had a very wide range of up to something like three octaves. He could go from right up the top of the soprano range, I think up to a top D, um, all the way down to D down at the bottom of the tenor range. And yes. uh, he didn't use those extreme notes all that often because, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're difficult to achieve, but uh, he could uh, sing just about anything. And that was one of the things that made him so famous. I mean, the the, the vocal range is one thing, but then as you say, um, th- having the music either that exploits it in a way that's uh, sympathetic to the, the, the singer is is another thing. And, and Handel, of course, is a master of this. He really was very close with his singers. And we've spoken a little bit about his uh, predilections and the singers with whom he worked more extensively. Um, but could you maybe remind our listeners of, of some of the names of the singers who were floating around London at the time when, um, when Handel was putting on his operas in London? Yeah. Um, well, Fellinelli is one of the most famous, though ironically, he didn't actually work for Handel. He was poached by the opera of the nobility. And so he was overworking for Porpora, about whom I'm sure we'll speak a little bit more later on at the time. But Handel did, uh, um, did hire some of the other greatest singers of the time. And there was probably a kind of uh, smallish um, group of the, the really major musicians of the period who all kind of worked together, knew each other to a fair extent. And so uh, one of the great sopranos, who a female sopranos who Handel hired, was Faustina Bordoni, who was actually uh, married to um, Johann Adolf Hasse, another composer who we hear on the program 
uh, on, on this concert. Um, in addition, the most notable castrato singer who Handel hired when he was in London was Francesco Bernardi, known as Senesino, because he was from Siena. Like uh, a lot of modern pop singers and soccer stars and so forth, many of the famous singers of the day had a kind of stage name, often a single name, just like um, Farinelli. Uh, Senesino was one of the other great singers of the time. Um, in addition to, to Faustina Bordoni, uh, he also employed another singer who was known as La Cuzzoni, Francesca Cuzzoni, who was the other great soprano. And in fact, he made a bit of a a uh, kind of um, splash politically in, in the musical world by employing both of these star sopranos at the same time. One of the things about the conventions of opera at the time were rather like the kind of standard conventions we have in musical theatre and in TV genres and so forth today. You had a fairly standard kind of cast where you have a leading man, a leading lady, and then a secondary man, a second lady, uh, and then various subsidiary characters who fill out the rest of the story. Uh, and each of these two sopranos was used to being the prima donna, the first lady. But he hired both of them at the same time and had them both on in the same show. And in fact, on one occasion, they physically came to blows on the stage, which was a bit of a scandal in itself. Uh, he did also have some important uh, male singers who were not castrati, however. And uh, so the tenor, Francesco Borossini, for example, was brought in to sing the second man role in the opera Tamerlano, which was one of his other big successes in London. And he also, uh, for some of the time, had the wonderful bass, uh, Antonio Montagnana, who again was somebody who had an extraordinarily wide range. He could go everywhere from the deepest bass notes, right down below the bass clef, right up into the top of the tenor range. And uh, there, so there were some arias written for him uh, particularly in chamber music, which exploited that remarkable range. So Handel was doing his best to hire absolutely the top singers from all over Europe for his company in London. And I, I think it's important, th this idea that it wasn't just a production or a, uh, an opera that was focused on one major singer, um, especially with, with Handel, uh, because... Europe and uh, and uh, even the fact that you had to go across the pond and getting across the pond was a bit more difficult at that time than it is now. Um, it was a very cosmopolitan place and there was uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, of art and culture being shared essentially across um, the pond, and uh, and these productions being put on in in London were certainly very true to the Italian form that um, that Handel had discovered during his pre-London Italian trip that we've um, spoken about um, previously on on the on the podcast. A, a name that I also um, would like to throw into the mix here of Handel's most famous uh, singers was the tenor John Beard, who uh, premiered some twenty roles as basically Handel's go-to tenor who was a very popular singer at the time too. Uh, that's right and he also featured particularly in the oratorios because he was English um, it made sense for him to be singing the English language works as well as as appearing in the Italian operas whereas on occasion Handel tried to use his Italian star singers in his English language oratorios but that was not such a big success because of course they didn't speak English. <laughs> in fact it was a wonderful review of one of the the oratorios when it was performed, I think, in Oxford, uh, which said that the uh, the Italian singers had made such rare work of the English tongue as it had been Welsh. 
words, you could understand their English just as well as if they'd been speaking Welsh. Yes, yes. Which I don't know if that says more about the um, the reviewer and their view of Welsh people than it does about the Italians. <laughs> but well, that certainly points out that it was a different language. Yes, yeah, that's for sure. Now you mentioned Hasse, and I'd love to get a little bit more into some of these and Porpora too. Some of these more obscure composers—they're not obscure by any uh, you know sense of the word, but um, but uh, maybe less uh, less heard in the concert hall. Um, uh, perhaps we could start with uh, Bordoni and and her husband uh, jo- um, uh, Johann uh, Adolf Hasse. Um, is it Johann or Holland? Yeah, that's right. Johann Adolf Hasse. Uh, so who was who was Hasse, and um, which particular aria of, of his are we going to hear um, in this program? Hasse had a lot in common with Handel, in fact, in that uh, they were both from. Um, Saxony, and both went to study in Italy and became notable composers of Italian opera. So quite interesting in that both of them were actually German, but finished up composing Italian opera. One reason for that is because Italian opera was the dominant genre of the time. If you wanted to really kind of make it in the industry, that was what you uh, went to learn how to do. Um, Hasse was just a few years younger than Handel, 14 years younger, so not quite a generation, but a little bit younger. Uh, He um, came from a town near Hamburg, in fact, originally, um, and had something of a career as a tenor before he went to Naples to study music in the 1720s, so when he was in his his 20s. And he quickly established himself as a successful composer. Uh, He got married to to Faustina Bordoni in 1730 and uh, then went to Dresden, where he was director of the court opera for a period. Um, So uh, he and his wife were kind of big names across Europe, and they did travel quite a bit. Uh, He, of course, um, hired to compose operas and she to sing them, not necessarily in his, but in all sorts of composers' operas across Europe. As you said, it was kind of a cosmopolitan scene because Italian opera particularly was such a dominant genre everywhere except in France, pretty much. Uh, The same people were kind of the top people in the industry, and they moved around between these centres. London particularly drew people from all over Europe because it was such an important large city. It had a very big population compared to nearly anywhere else in Europe, and it was a very rich city. So there was a lot of money around to support performers. And so um, it's not surprising that uh, Faustino Bordoni, for example, would have, have gone to London, as well as working across the rest of Europe. Now, Hasse um, was actually a very big name at the time. You know, we talk about him now as being relatively little known, and that's certainly the case compared to somebody like Handel or Dreyas Bach or Vivaldi. But uh, part of that is just the, the usual kind of accidents of history, in that uh, somebody who was especially famous at the time doesn't their music was not necessarily preserved particularly, and it didn't continue to be performed simply because there wasn't a reason to. It had gone out of fashion. Uh, Somebody like Handel remained in the repertoire, not for the operas, but for his oratorios. Everybody sang Messiah in choirs and so forth in England through the 19th and 20th centuries. And it was really a matter of rediscovering the operas, which were pretty much entirely unknown until the middle of the 20th century. And so Hasseb, because he didn't write, you know, English oratorios or something else that had a reason to stay in the repertoire, uh, had simply gone out of fashion, disappeared out of the the repertoire in the 19th century, uh, and is now 
being rediscovered along with some of the other uh, great composers of the period. When people at the time talked about a German composer of Italian opera, the person they thought of was not likely to be Handel so much as Sasse. He was much better known and more kind of embedded in the industry across Europe, whereas Handel was kind of off uh, on, a, on his own little tangent in a way, working in London all that time, away from the main centres of uh, European music making on the continent. Hasse was right in the middle of it in Germany and Italy, uh, from Rome to Naples to Dresden and so forth, uh, and very successful and famous for it. And another composer that springs to mind, it, it, like Hasse, that um, it has become more of an obscure name, although starting to be rediscovered now, is one that was featured in the Higher Angels program with a spectacular aria that was sung so well by Sarah McLeaver, um in Karl Heinrich Graun. But in this program, uh, Hasse and the uh, particular aria we're going to hear is uh, Morte col fiero aspetto from a serenata, not an opera, about Marcantonio e Cleopatra. So, of course, the wonderful story of, of, of Antonio and, and, and Cleopatra. And, um, and, and perhaps you could tell us the difference then, um, Alan, and, and how this would have functioned as a work, a, a serenata versus an opera. What, what's the difference really here? There were quite a few terms around for pieces that were not as big as an opera, but were larger than, say, a cantata, which was normally only two or three arias with some recitative. Um, serenatas and pieces of, uh, of kind of related types were generally celebratory pieces for a particular occasion. Uh, typically, they would be for, say, the king's birthday, the queen's name day, um, events like that, where something celebratory was wanted, but not a full-scale opera. So it could be performed with a smaller cast in a smaller venue. Very often they were for particular court performances where they would not be in the public theatre, but just in the chambers of the royal family uh, as a celebration of that particular person. Uh, in this particular case, the, uh, the piece by Hasse that we're going to hear, um, uh, Antony and Cleopatra, was written in 1725 for a councillor at the court in Naples and performed on his country estate. So that would be a typical kind of scenario where he has uh, his city palace and his country um, palazzo, his sort of castle in the countryside. Uh, and so they would have the performance there with a small scale cast. In this case, we have the lead roles performed by Farinelli, who we've talked about before, the castrato singer, and by the female alto Vittoria Tesi. Interesting thing is that it's Farinelli, the male singer, who is performing Cleopatra, and Tesi, the female singer, who is singing the part of Mark Antony. And then here we have essentially the, the same thing again with, uh, with Samuel performing the role of, of Cleopatra, which I find it, it's, it's gender fluidity, of course, back in the Baroque period was probably more advanced than, than we are even, even now because no one obviously would have seen a problem with, uh, with that by any uh, way, shape or form. That's right. It was simply a matter of getting the best singers you could get, whoever they were, and casting them in the most important roles. Uh, so many uh, castrati, particularly early in their careers, did specialise in singing female roles. And in fact, they were sometimes needed because there were um, places, particularly in Rome, uh, female singers were not allowed to appear on the stage. And so in order to put on any kind of an opera, when they were allowed by the Pope at all, uh, 
you had to have an all-male cast, and that meant you had to have Castrato singing the female lead. But they also sang female roles quite a bit, uh, whereas there were some female singers, like Tezi, who quite often sang male roles. The important thing was simply the status of the character and your ability to portray that on the stage. So mm. it did involve mastering the appropriate acting to project that character, but the pitch of the voice, how high or low it was, didn't actually matter. Or it mattered rather in the sense that all of the main characters, the lead roles, tended to be sung by high voices. You had very few pieces, in fact, in which a tenor or a bass appeared in any of the leading roles. They tended to be the, um, the servant, the uh, advisor, the military general who comes in and blusters a little bit and tells us what happened in the battle and so on, but not the leading, the, the king, the queen, the emperor, uh, who are the main protagonists in the plot. And uh, I've got a wonderful recording for our listeners that uh, comes from uh, one of my favourite, actually, sopranos at the at the moment, regular Muriman, who has uh, done an entire album of Cleopatra arias, which is, I just think, such a fantastic idea. And uh, and she's recorded this with La Folia Baroque Orchestra in uh, in 2017. So this is Morte col fiero aspetto um, from Marc Antonio e Cleopatra, recorded by regular Muriman in 2017. 17. This is fantastic, stormy music, isn't it, Alan? It is. And interesting, the words of this aria, uh, it starts, Morte col fiero aspetto, the fierce face of death. But And so you can hear that being illustrated in the music, that uh, furious running up and down in the strings and the, the rising chromatic line, da, da, de, da, da. it feels quite scary. But then the words go on, the fierce face of death holds no horror for me if I can in freedom die on the throne from which I reigned. And mm. so the music changes to reflect that. It starts out with this illustration of the, the ferocious scariness of death. And then we hear it, uh, kind of turn into a more reflective or at least a more uh, uh, happy kind of um, tone uh, to say that actually she's not scared by death. She is looking forward to it, to, to dying on her own terms. And this is this sort of assertive behaviour is one that I'm sure many uh, people could uh, affiliate with Cleopatra as a character, a figure so well known and and written about and so much fiction as well as um, non-fiction has been written about her. And, and uh, it's... It, it really seems true to character, um, to me anyway. Yeah, that's right. I mean, everybody, I guess, you know, we don't really know uh, exactly what uh, 
the ancient history um, was, or that her character, as far as we can tell, it only comes from the, those uh, historical accounts. But each generation reconceptualizes the past for itself. And so in the early 18th century, that kind of imagining of Cleopatra as quite a powerful figure um, and one of, of really uh, significant intrigue in her relationships with the Romans, with, with Caesar and with, with Antony, um, really was uh, fodder for a lot of uh, quite powerful music making and, and powerful dramatic writing by the poets as well. Now, some other powerful music making, as you refer to it, uh, it is in the form of um, some of the uh, the instrumental music that's also on this program. Because it, even though the the main feature and the star of the show is definitely Samuel, we have some beautiful music. And um, and one composer in particular that I wanted to 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 call out was Antonio Sartorio. And, uh, and we're going to hear something that has not been performed by the Brandenburg for quite some time, but was recorded on the uh, Sanctuary album that was released back in 2004. Uh, it's an aria uh, titled Orfeo tu dormi from um, Sartorio's opera L'Orfeo. Perhaps, Ellen, you could start by telling us about Antonio Sartorio. Who, who was Sartorio and, and where does he fit into the, the, the context of all these composers we have on the program? Sartorio is the earliest of the composers we have on the program. He was born back in 1630 and died in 1680. So he died just a few years before Handel was born. Um, so his music represents the style of the 1660s, 1670s, a generation or more before people like Handel and, uh, and then Hasse, who was slightly younger again. And we can hear that in the music. It sounds... Uh, it's kind of halfway between, say, Monteverdi and Handel. And uh, so listeners who are familiar with the music of Monteverdi in, say, his opera, Orfeo, Orpheus, or the, uh, the famous Vespers of 1610, uh, that kind of style feels a long, long way from the style we get in the early 18th century of, of Handel. And in a way, it's kind of a misnomer that we describe all of this, that music as being Baroque. You know, that, that's really some quite distinct styles, as you'd expect with music written a century apart. Well, Sartorio fits kind of halfway between. And so we can see some of the development away from the style of Monteverdi and heading in the direction that we're eventually going to finish up with, uh, with Handel. Um, Sartorio himself was Venetian, uh, like so many of the important musicians of the period. And uh, however, like a lot of Italian musicians, he moved around. And in 1666, he went to Hanover, in fact, uh, to be music director to the Duke, uh, Johann Friedrich of Braunschweig -Wolf uh, Lüneburg, uh, Brunswick Lüneburg. Um, and uh, so there was quite a demand for Italian musicians in Germany through this period. It was a time when Italian opera was starting to become really fashionable and important, and Italy had become the kind of um, the, the center of gravity for European music making, uh, where most of the most innovative and uh, new kind of music was coming from. And so many Italian musicians did work in Germany during this period, partly driven by the fact that there were so many small principalities in Germany, each of which had its own little court, and they competed with each other, not only in uh, military terms and, and political terms, but in cultural terms by trying to have the best uh, musicians and artists and poets and so forth around each of these courts. So Sartoria works uh, in Hanover um, for a 
a few seasons, but then he returned to Venice for health reasons in 1672, and that's where this opera comes from. And this, again, is an Orpheus story, uh, like um, a couple of the arias that we're going to have on this program. Yes, Orpheus is a bit of a running thread through the program, but... um... Um, when uh, listeners are, are at the concert hall, they'll notice that, in fact, um, Adam Masters, who's going to perform this particular aria on the oboe, um, he is a bit of a running theme to the program as well, because the, uh, as you've mentioned, um, the potential combination of voices and, and oboe was certainly one that was exploited um, masterfully by by Handel and and others. And in fact, even though um, the the this was not written for oboe, the melody just seems to um, to shine on the instrument. So here we, we don't have Adam Masters in the recording, but rather his um, predecessor, uh, Kirsten Barry, performing with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. This is Orfeo Tudormi on Baroque Oboe. going in the background, Alan. It's just so plaintive and heart-wrenching. Perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about the story, remind us of the story of Orpheus and um, and, and what that whole story is about. Yeah, I guess um, many listeners will be familiar with the, the story of, of Orpheus and Eurydice, how um, uh, they are, uh, depending on the version of the story, they have are about to be married or have just been married when Eurydice is bitten on the foot by a poisonous snake and dies. Um, Orpheus, uh, who is the son of Apollo, so he's a, a demigod and has um, some uh, special powers that ordinary people don't have, including being a, a kind of magically endowed musician. Um, Orpheus decides he's going to go down to the underworld to try and retrieve Eurydice from the the hold of death. Uh, This, of course, is something that ordinary mortals can't do, but he as a demigod has the power to go down and with the power of his lyre, his little stringed instrument um, singing, he's able to persuade Hades, the king of the underworld, to release Eurydice and allow her to come back with him to the upper world. However, Hades sets one condition, which is that he must not look at her on the way back. If he does, she will die and never be able to return. Um, However, she doesn't know that. And so as they're returning towards on the long journey from the underworld back towards the upper world, uh, she calls on Orpheus to to turn and look at her. She says, why won't you look at me when when you've 
come all this way to, to come and get me. And uh, eventually he gives in and looks around. And of course, she is taken straight away back into death and, and back to the underworld. Um, in the uh, some of the original uh, tellings of this story in ancient myth, um, Orpheus then goes, spends the rest of his life lamenting um, until he is finally set upon by a group of Bacantes, the sort of crazed female followers of the god Bacchus, the god of wine and craziness and all of that, uh, who tear him limb from limb and his head floats down the river still singing. <laughs> um, we don't get that ending in any of the operas, I can tell you about, about Orpheus. There's always a, some version of a, a happier ending than that. But um, in this particular aria, it's actually sung by the character of Eurydice, his wife. Uh, and, uh, yeah, a very gentle one, the words of which are, Orpheus, you sleep, um, tu dormi. So uh, it has that kind of gentle, restful character. And I, I thank you very for the wonderful segue to the aria by Gluck uh, that we're going to be hearing on the program because, as you did mention, this this is a running theme and we have the aria that Orpheus um, sings after uh, looking uh, looking back and seeing Eurydice and, and, and then seeing her, her return to the underworld, essentially, from and leave his grasp. Um, it's... It's strange to, to, to think sometimes in, in a musical sense, the difference between minor keys and major keys and the way that certain emotions are portrayed, obviously there for that beautiful, gentle um, aria, Orfeo tu dormi, we have a, a minor key. You know, this is, there's this certain serenity in it, but it, it, it is a minor key. And yet for this aria and the story that you've just uh, described, Che farò senza Euridice, um, it's in a major key, and yet it's at the point when Orpheus is coming to terms with exactly just what's happened, and after all of his efforts, um, failing at the last step, as it were. That's right. Yeah, this is the most famous Orpheus aria, I think, of of all from any of the you know the operas about um, the story of Orpheus. And as you say, it's the one he sings when he has just lost her again. She's she's uh, she's died, and. Um, uh, what on earth is he going to do? And it is surprising uh, when we put it in that context of the story that the music doesn't sound sadder. We expect to hear a lamenting kind of piece uh, as uh, many composers of the period really excelled at doing. However, I think there are a couple of things going on here. Uh, one of them is that this is significantly later than most of the other music that we have been hearing. It was composed first for Vienna in 1761, which is not a long time after the handle that we've been hearing, which was from the 1730s, so about kind of 25 years later. But musical style is changing fairly significantly through this period. We're heading away from what we uh, are used to thinking of as the late Baroque style of people like Handel and Vivaldi and Treas Bach in the direction of the kind of music that we associate with Haydn and later on with Mozart. Uh, so part of it is that kind of shift in aesthetic which is going on. And in particular in this opera, it was a kind of experimental piece in a way in which Gluck uh, and his uh, librettist collaborator Calzabigi were trying to work out a new kind of dramaturgy almost for, opera, for serious opera in which they wanted to get away from the kind of virtuosity that we've heard in so many of the arias so far, and which is such a big feature of the 
music of the previous generation, in terms of a, a, an aesthetic of a kind of noble simplicity, which was associated with classicism, in fact, uh, and is one of the reasons why we sometimes call the, the period that follows in music the classical era of people like Haydn and Mozart. Uh, and to do that, they stripped away a lot of the outer kind of decoration of the music and tried to make it simple, heartfelt, very direct. And what we get here is instead of an intense lament where he, he kind of pours out his soul, it's rather, well, there are several ways of interpreting it. One is that he is almost transcended grief. He is so stricken by grief that there's nothing left to say. And that uh, is a sentiment that we get in quite a few of the libretti on this story. Uh, the same in the Monteverdi, Orfeo, his, his words are, um, I, can, uh, I feel so much I can no longer feel almost. Um, and so there may be an element of that, that it is, uh, he's gone beyond the immediate intensity of grief to, to a kind of numbness. But another way of looking at it is that it has to do with the aesthetics of the Enlightenment, when this is about kind of transcending the ordinary weaknesses of, of humankind. It's about the kind of the perfectibility of the human who can transcend uh, the, the really noble spirit can transcend uh, the ordinary pains of the world and uh, and show us the, the, his nobility of character. His galanterie um, was was one of the terms from the time. The, the galant homme in, in French terminology the, was the man who was uh, kind of above the, the ordinary things. He's, he's in control of his environment. He is educated. He's sophisticated. And he can kind of hold the ordinary emotions of the world at bay. It's something of that kind of aristocratic um, sang-froid, the uh, sort of cool-bloodedness that, that says... Um, I can remain in control of the things around me, as aristocrats had to do, by staying above the emotional turmoil. I still feel the emotions, but I don't express them outwardly in a way that other people can see. They, I experience them internally. And so uh, what he externalizes is the, the surface of that sense of control, of, um, uh, of nobility, in the way that he responds, I think that's a wonderful uh, thing to to consider the idea of gallantry and and um, and the noble sense how Orpheus carries himself in a noble sense, especially given the character being a demigod and having you know being um, re replete with powers and all all the the, the sorts of things that that in, uh, that means or rather meant that uh, previously in in history, and. One other thought that I had in terms of the um, the emotional side of things here, as it's expressed by uh, Gluck in, in his aria, it's almost as if the emotion maybe hasn't even hit Orpheus yet. He, he may still be riding the emotional high, as it were, of having successfully persuaded Hades to um, give him back his uh, Eurydice. And yet everything's gone wrong and you have these, even though it's in a major key, you have this beautiful uh, singing punctuated by outbursts, Eurydice, 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 and it's just, it's almost as if he hasn't even had enough time to contemplate what's just happened. And, uh, and for this particular recording that I'm going to put on for our listeners, uh, we have a beautiful and very recent uh, recording by uh, Samuel Mourinho with La Cetra Baroque Orchestra, um, Basel, led by Andrea Mac uh, Marcon. And 
it's I think the way that Samuel goes about portraying the character um, struck a chord with with me because uh, as a performer you do have to make the decision uh, how are you going to portray this character and for the most part this aria is lovely and lilting and in a major key but then these as I said uh, these these this juxtaposed almost uh, shouting hap- happens. It's almost as if there are pangs of emotion that are striking the character at, at times rather than some soulful, deep lament that has already set in. That's right. And, in fact, in the second strophe, um, so the first first words, what will I do without Eurydice? Where will I go without my beloved? Uh, oh, God, answer me. I'm still your faithful one. What will I do? He sings, the, so it's a refrain. It's actually a, a sort of strophic aria in which this refrain comes back. What will I do without Eurydice? But then in the second strophe, he calls out for her, as you say, and then says, ah, no more help comes to me. There is no more hope, neither from this world nor from heaven. And it's there that we actually hear it get um, more intensely and more overtly sad. But then he does refer to, ref, uh, he does return to the uh to the refrain, um, which has this beautiful, lilting, restrained kind of atmosphere. Mm. So, yeah, whichever way around it is, maybe um, he he certainly can't hold it in all the time, shall no. I say. No, and that juxtaposition, I think, the way that it's captured musically is probably why this aria is so loved um, and still performed by everyone from Janet Baker to, you know, baritones and all the rest. I mean, it's it's just an incredible aria. So without any further ado, this is Samuel Mourinho singing again, Che farò senza Euridice from Orfeo ed Euridice, Act 3, Scene 1. Keep that recording that um, Decker actually just released early this year um, going on in the background, Alan. Perhaps you could tell us then about uh, Gluck and, and where does Gluck fit into these, um, these, this panoply of, of, of composers that we have on the program? He uh, came from Bohemia originally, now the Czech Republic, uh, and his father was a gamekeeper. So he didn't come from one of those kind of dynasties of, of musicians, uh, like, for example, the Bach family. 
Uh, we don't know much about his early life, but he turns up in Milan as a composer in the late 1730s. So he's just starting out his career at the same time as, say, Handel is well established in London. Um, now, he moved around quite a bit, as a lot of composers did, uh, getting established in his career, including a stint in London in the mid-1750s. Uh, and uh, Handel actually came across him there and was not impressed. Uh, he famously said, Gluck knows as much about counterpoint as my cook. Counterpoint being uh, kind of the technical aspects of, of writing fugues and so on. Um, he was uh, Handel had a great turn of phrase, and so he was probably just having a go. But it's also notable that his cook was in fact a, a musician. He was a double bass player in the orchestra, so he <laughs> uh, was uh, probably not quite as uh, severe a comment as it sounded. But at any rate, um, look, uh, did get then a succession of prestigious um, appointments and commissions. Uh, and by the mid-1750s, uh, he was living in Vienna, where he was composing mostly Italian opera. Um, but uh, so it's, it's interesting that through this period from the 50s and 60s into the 70s, uh, he was writing then some of these reform operas of the kind like um, Orpheus and Eurydice that we've just been listening to. But uh, at the same time, he also continued writing some of the more traditional uh, serious Italian operas in the the usual Italian style. So it's not as if he just kind of threw everything out and said, no, I'm forging my path into this new way. It was more, uh, we're going to try out this kind of experimental thing and see whether uh, and where it will work. And in fact, one of the places where the newer kind of style was particularly successful was in Paris. And that's significant because Italian and French music had been so different through the past century, really. There'd been very distinct styles and Italian music was not much heard in France until certainly the mid-century. And likewise, hardly any French music was heard in, uh, in Italy. Um, in Germany, they had a bit of a mixture of the two. So the fact that a German composer of Italian music could have a success in Paris was quite a big deal. And the French did take to the newer style of opera because in a way it was actually more like French opera. It was a sort of compromise between Italian and French styles, which uh, was very much um, in, its, in its moment. This was the right time for that to happen. Uh, and so it's notable that uh, Orpheus and Eurydice, the opera we're just listening to, in fact, the version that we heard there sung by Samuel Mourinho is not from the original 1761 composition for Vienna. It was from a revised version, which was performed in Parliament in 1769, when the role which had originally been written for an alto castrato was transposed for soprano. And that's why we have it in that high key. We often, we more typically hear it in the original version for alto. Um, that version for Parma was a kind of cut-down version in which the whole opera of Orpheus was actually crammed into one act to be part of a longer piece, which was, again, a celebratory kind of work rather than a standard theatrical work. But then when it was done in Paris, uh, later again in 1774, so 23 years after, no, uh, sorry, 13 years after it had originally been composed, it was rewritten again um, because they didn't use castrati in France. Uh, so instead it was written for a high tenor, the haute voice, um, which was the one which in French music typically sang the uh, alto kind of roles. The one below the soprano was the haute which was, but instead of being a counter tenor, it was just a super high ordinary tenor, we might say. Uh, and so uh, that it was done in that French version by Opera Australia. Some listeners may remember uh, back in the early 90s with David Hobson as um, 
as Orpheus in doing that in the, the tenor version. Uh, so a lot of these pieces, when they were revived at all, and that was not all that often, but where a piece was done in more than one place or one, more than one time, it was nearly always rewritten to suit the audience for whom it was being performed, in this case, say, a French audience rather than an Italian one, but also to suit the particular singers who were going to perform it. It wasn't a case as we have today with repertoire opera where you have a standard composition by, say, you know, Verdi's La Traviata or something, and so you have to then hire the singers who have the right kind of voice to sing the roles that Verdi wrote. Instead, nearly all the music was new, and if it wasn't new, it was newly adapted for each particular performance, taking into account the, uh, the strengths and weaknesses of each individual singer. As you said before, uh, the pieces were carefully composed by Handel, by Vivaldi, by all of these composers, specifically for the individual singers. And in fact, uh, even a generation later, Mozart said that he liked to write every aria so that it fitted the singer like a glove. It was exactly suited to that particular person's voice. And it's the logical thing to do. I mean, uh, often, especially as uh, younger composers imagining Handel during his visit to his first visit to to Italy, as it were, you know, they they were being imbued with just as much information about the voice by the singers themselves uh, um, directly, rather than their own what what they were hearing when they were watching the singers on stage in other performances by by other composers. You know, it would wouldn't have only been the composers uh, that it would have been in, basically informing decisions, but actually the singers themselves. The singer can more easily tell you exactly what their range is and and what's going to be possible on a good day and what's going to be possible on a not so good day, and uh, and and. And that information is exactly what composers need to keep in mind when they're preparing, obviously for you know not just an opera, which is itself a um, a, a, a large undertaking in any one go, but a series of operas performances where you have the opera on that night and then again the next night and then again the next night. There there, there are realities, physical realities here in uh, at play um, that um, that I don't think often um, uh, you know we appreciate because we just have such facility with. Um, with CDs and recordings on Spotify and various other things, you just hit play and off it goes. It is one of the great things about hearing this stuff performed live, you know, that you actually go into the theatre and there's a real human being there in front of you who has uh, has one go, you know, to get this right and to to perform it directly to us in the theatre. And uh, it's, uh, it's why it's such an exciting ride, particularly with some of this very uh, challenging, difficult music. And... In light of what we were saying just a moment ago about how it was written for a particular singer who and to suit their particular strengths and weaknesses. So now we're in the position where it has become kind of like repertoire opera, where we have to find the singers who can sing something that was actually written for somebody else for a very particular kind of voice at the time. And so uh, when we get the singers now who are able to match the the abilities and the uh, the skills of those uh greatest singers of a former century, that's something really to be celebrated. So we've we've spoken a lot about um, about various operas and, and in fact several of the composers, but um, there are a few uh, composers we haven't mentioned at all in Nicola Porpora and um, and Evaristo Felice Dallabajo. Um, now Dallabajo, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his surname, given that he was an Italian working in in Spain, and 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 uh, I think you it'd be great for you to um, to enlighten us about about him. But um, perhaps we could just go through some of the 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 remaining items on the, on the program. There. 
Yeah, so uh, if we start with uh, Porpora talking about uh, opera composers, he was one of the other major opera composers of the early part of the 18th century. Again, somebody whose name is not nearly so well known today, but at the time he was absolutely uh, one of the leading lights in European opera. So the same generation as people like Handel, Handel and, and Hasse. Um, he, uh, he started out in Naples. Um, he moved around, as many composers did. He spent quite a while in Venice, where he, like Vivaldi, um, listeners may remember the story of how Vivaldi uh, had his main kind of day job, as it were, for a lot of his career, was as a violin teacher and sometimes uh, standard director of music for one of the four famous um, institutions for orphaned and abandoned girls in Venice, the uh, Ospedali. Um, he was at the Ospedale della Pietà, the Hospital of Mercy, literally, um, and for whom, who, for whose female orchestra and choir he wrote uh, many of his uh, concertos and also a lot of his sacred music. Well, Porpora also did a stint in Venice working at one of the other Ospedali, which operated in a similar way with a female choir and orchestra and wrote a lot for them. Uh, but he was also a leading um, professional opera composer. And so when uh, the Opera of the Nobilities was set up in opposition to Handel in London, it was Porpora who they got in as their chief composer, the house composer and director of music. And partly because of his reputation, uh, they were able to draw in some of the best singers. And one of the reasons why they could do that was for his reputation, not only as a composer, but also as a singing teacher. He had actually trained some of the great singers of the day. And so uh, he had connections to, to some of those people who he could then call in to work with him. Uh, so he is uh, another of the really significant uh, composers of the day who we are now getting to know once more. And much uh, more of his music has been recorded just in the last 20 years than had been heard before. There's still a lot more to be rediscovered. For example, um, one of the fun things I was able to do on a previous sabbatical was working in the archive of the Basilica of St. Anthony of Padua, uh, which uh, has a large music collection of manuscripts uh, in their library from dating from this period. Um, I was able to reconstruct two uh, sacred motets by Porpora, which are very unusually written for bass voice rather than for alto or soprano. Uh, and so there is music like this by these major composers still being rediscovered and quite a bit which has not yet been recorded or heard in modern day. Uh, so Porpora is one who I'm really looking forward to hearing more from. Mm. Um, we did have a, a previous uh, program uh, several years ago. We had uh, a program which was half Handel and half Porpora. And uh, you might remember that was with the... With Philip Juruski. It was the, the French countertenor Philip Juruski. And uh, I remember, you know, I knew most of the Handel arias pretty well, but I only knew one or two of the Porpora. And uh, I must say I came away with a, a higher opinion of Porpora. And in fact, I, I remember thinking to myself... Out of all of these areas, which are the ones I like best? Well, several of them were the pauperal ones, right, ahead of the handle. Uh, that An element of that may have been the novelty that they were ones that I didn't know, but uh, he was absolutely a top composer and, and very much of his music is, is well worth getting to know. And then Evaristo Felice Darabaco. Perhaps you could tell us about him. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Dallavico is one of those people who is not well known today, but was uh, quite a significant composer in his time. He was from Verona uh, in northern Italy and uh, started working as a professional musician in Modena, 
um, when he was uh, about 20. So typical kind of start that he gets a job as a court musician. Um, but uh, he was notable enough that he was picked up by the uh, Maximilian Emmanuel, Elector of Bavaria, uh, who uh, needed a court musician and employed him as a cellist. Um, Don Abacol gradually developed his career composing as well as performing clearly and uh, became a, a significant member of Maximilian's orchestra. Now, unfortunately for both Maximilian and for his uh, cellist, Delabaco, uh, they were involved in a war and uh, they lost basically the battle. Um, in fact, Maximilian's army was defeated by the Duke of Marlborough at the famous Battle of Blenheim, as in Blenheim Palace, which was given to the Duke afterwards as uh, in recognition of his success. Now, this was part of the War of the Spanish Succession, which was uh, raging across particularly Southern Europe during this period. Uh, so uh, just a few months after starting the job in Munich, they had to pick up and go and uh, went up to Maximilian's other territory, which was in the Netherlands. He was the, the governor of the Netherlands. Um, and that put them actually quite close to Northern France. And so there was much more French influence in the music up there. So it's quite unusual that Balabaco is an Italian composer who actually spent quite a bit of time in areas that were influenced by French style. And so he wrote music which incorporated elements of Italian and French. And so in some of the music we're gonna hear in this particular concerto, we actually get, uh, so the first movement sound more or less like Vivaldi and the later ones sound much more like uh, French music at the time. Yes, I'd love to play for listeners. In fact, the not the opening movement, but the Chacona that uh, is the, uh, the the third movement, um, which is swiftly followed by a rondo at the at the end. So as to whether or not it's two separate movements or just a continuation of the same thing, um, I'll let listeners decide. But uh, this too was a track that um, that featured on the Sanctuary album. Um, previously recorded by the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, and it just has such light and, and happiness. I think um, our listeners will revel in, in this particular music. Now, as the cellos take off there, I'll, I'll bring the, the sound down a, a bit, but leave it on in the background. Um, I, I think you can hear the sense that you've got a man who's very familiar with the cello that's writing this particular <laughs> music, because there seems to be so much in it for them. 
Uh, yeah, that's right. And interesting that uh, there were several leading composers at the time who were actually bass players, bass string players. Um, so Zelenka, who was uh, one of the uh, members of the famous court orchestra in Dresden, was also the double bass player. And a uh, composer I've been particularly working on, Antonio Caldara, was also a cellist. And so he writes some wonderful cello obbligato uh, sections in his uh, vocal music. Uh, and I think you're right, we're probably hearing that uh, for a man who was probably going to play the part himself, and so he can put in <laughs> bits that he really enjoys to play. The um, Chaconne there, although it's given an Italian title, it sounds to me quite a lot like a French Chaconne of the period. Um, the Chaconne was originally a dance form, and you can actually hear the, the dance kind of feel of a piece like that. Um, and you may have noticed that the uh, it sounds almost like a kind of set of little variations with a repeating bass line, which was very typical of the Chacon. Done in various kind of varied forms. It doesn't actually continue to, to do exactly that, that bass line all the way through, but it's set up so much that it kind of feels like it's just a repetition of that, um, that uh, kind of um, little unit which goes all the way back to where the, the name uh, of its related form, the Pasacaglia, comes from, which was from the walking the streets, Pasacaglia, walking in the street, um, the kind of thing that was played by busking musicians for people to, to listen to and dance to and so on. Uh, so that's, that's the kind of background to it. But that goes back a couple of centuries before. By the time we get up to the early part of the 18th century, the Chaconne had become the typical kind of final... Um, set dance in uh, in French uh, theatre pieces, so in operas and ballets and so forth, you typically finished up with a chacon like this, which was kind of a, a spectacular finale to the whole thing. And so it works very well like that, also in an instrumental piece. Now, as always, Alan, it has been such a, a pleasure to, um, to be able to go into this music and talk about these composers with you. Uh, but um, but we haven't basically mentioned or spoken about Vivaldi at all, and uh, and yet we, we've we've all, we've basically run out of time. I think I think listeners won't uh, begrudge me the fact that I haven't played any Vivaldi on this particular um, recording. But um, but I will ask you uh, out of um, out of the Vivaldi, what what Vivaldi are we going to hear um, in this particular program, and and what sort of Vivaldi I suppose is going to be on this program. Yeah, well, we're not getting what we so often hear of Vivaldi, which is violin concertos, because he wrote so many and they're so wonderful. We are getting a uh, what's sometimes called a concerto, but it's really a, a, a better term to symphony, yeah, a symphony or actually an overture, which is the first piece on the program. It's uh, an ensemble piece for strings, which probably was, in fact, originally the overture to an opera. Uh, then we're going to get um, a motet in Furore Justissimae Irae, which in uh, the, the, the fury of divine justice, essentially. Um, so that is uh, an example of a kind of church piece, which was very typical during this period. It has the feel of operatic style music. It's actually quite spectacular, but it was for church performance. And it has a particular form which listeners may be familiar with from uh, Mozart's uh, Exultate Jubilate, um, which has a fast opening movement, a short recitative, a slower movement, and then a very spectacular Alleluia at the end. And uh, this is a very standard format for these motets through this period. Pauper wrote many of them as well. Um, and uh, 
and Handel wrote some, and this is one that Vivaldi wrote, not in fact for Venice, but for Rome. And would that originally have been sung by a soprano, or was this, was it in the case of, of a Roman performance, would this have had to be sung by a, by a man? Yeah, it um, in Venice, unusually, it would have been expected to be sung by a woman simply because uh, Vivaldi was working for these institutions, which were all female, and therefore they they had female singers who would not normally be able to sing in public, uh, and particularly not in church. But in Rome, uh, there were no such female singers, and certainly there was no female singing in church. And so it was written for a castrato soprano. Mm. Now, ahead of Samuel uh, Mourinho appearing on the Brandenburg stage, and with so much to choose from, what are you most looking forward to in the soprano, Alan? Mm. It's hard to pick, isn't it, from so much wonderful stuff. In some ways, I'm looking forward to hearing that motet, because uh, I've done a bit of work on um, on motets like those ones by Corpora that I mentioned before. And uh, we don't often get to hear them in performance these days. So it is wonderful to hear something which is a, a kind of a, uh, a little seed in itself. You know, it's not just a one-off aria taken away from something else. It's actually the whole piece. It's um, three arias with a little recitative in, in between. And so it uh, allows us to kind of build up the mood and the, the, the sense of what the piece is about and hear it as, as one whole performance. And that's something I'm really looking forward to. And if listeners are curious, there is a recording featuring Samuel Mourinho performing that particular motet already available on CD. And uh, and uh, I just have to say that, it, I mean, it is hard to go past that motet. Another thing that we haven't uh, spoken about it at all, that I, I, it's, a, it's a dark horse because it's obviously one of the instrumental works on the program, but a, a, the Concerto Grosso in D major from Handel's Opus 3, it's Opus 3, number 3. Uh, I, I, there's something about this particular Concerto Grosso that I, I'm quite fond of. Are you are you familiar with the work? Yeah, it's a it's a lovely piece, and um, also a little bit of an anomaly in that uh, by this stage the Concerto Grosso as a genre had pretty much gone out of style, and uh, so Handel they but it continued on to be when when Concerto Grosso had gone out of fashion in Italy, they continued to be in fashion to some extent in England partly because the Concerti Grossi of Corelli had been published and became some of the first pieces that were kind of classical standard repertoire that stayed in the repertoire for a long period, where in the time when nearly all the music that people heard was new, the Corelli pieces kind of stayed uh, as regular staples. Um, and uh, so other composers, including English composers, wrote new Concerti Grossi uh, and trio sonatas and so forth in styles that had gone out of fashion in Italy and continued it on in England. And so Handel is kind of doing that. But his are not really in the style of Corelli, which had become by then a bit old fashioned. And instead, uh, he puts together various movements in um, of different kinds into this piece, which uh, comes out you know, sounding quite original. Mm. And indeed, even further to the, the confusion, that particular collection of, of Concerti Grossi was really put together at the, be the bequest of the... Um, at the request of the publisher, Handel's publisher forced the issue there, and and it's it's not quite the same sort of cohesive collection as um, his Opus Six uh, was. That's right, yeah. And uh, in fact, some of these pieces we're not even entirely sure whether Handel really put it together himself or whether the publisher actually <laughs> uh, kind of <laughs> well. 
probably Handel agreed to it in the end, but uh, it was it may have been more a case of, of his publisher, Walsh, um, saying, look, I really need some more of your stuff to, to get into print and to sell. Uh, what have you got? You know, and, and so uh, Handel, you know, gave him, put together various elements of, in some cases, pieces that he had written previously, uh, some bits that were new and, uh, and kind of put them together into works that could then be presented as a, as a new composition. And so in this case, unusually for a concerto grosso, we have an oboe solo. Typically a concerto grosso, the, the Corelli style, um, was for two violins and cello as the, the solos leading the ensemble, um, but without uh, something like this, like a wind instrument as a solo. So it's kind of unusual in that way, but uh, a wonderful piece. Well, I, uh, I won't keep you any longer. Thank you as always, Alan, for joining me. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing you at City Recital Hall. Indeed, and I'm looking forward to being there. This uh, is going to be quite a treat. If you've enjoyed this podcast today, consider making a donation in support of the Brandenburg by visiting our website, www.brandenburg.com.au. Thank you for this very important role you play as part of the Brandenburg family. And thank you for joining us. This has been Tales of Baroque with Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology of the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music, and your host, Hugh Ronzani from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. <laughs>